Okay, hello and welcome. Today we're joined by Josh Koskoff from the Koskoff, Koskoff and Beater firm located in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Josh uh, graduated from Syracuse University, Suffolk uh, College, University of School of Law in Boston. Josh has won some incredible verdicts throughout his career. $25 million verdict in 2016 for a woman who suffered a amputation of her leg. In 2009, record verdict, 22.5, wrongful death in the state of Connecticut. He was also named the 2017 Connecticut uh, Trial Lawyer of the Year. He's a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, and we're joined and lucky to have Josh here today. Welcome, Josh, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian. It's always a pleasure. Okay, Josh, let's get right to it. This is a, a really unique question that I am also part of. And the fact that you're a third generation lawyer, your grandfather was the, I assume the first name on the firm, Theodore Koskoff was a well-known uh, plaintiff lawyer, civil rights advocate. He was also the president of the, uh, at the time, I think it was called the American Trial Lawyers Association. Your father, Michael Koskoff, noted trial attorney and author and a filmmaker, uh, recently did the film Marshall, which he wrote the screenplay along with your brother, and uh, that was produced. And also, he was a former president of the Inner Circle Advocates. And then, Josh, you come along, and I believe one of your sisters is also a lawyer. Is that right? That's right. She uh, she is a lawyer. She she uh, is not practicing at the moment, but she did uh, do her time in New York City representing uh, indigent folks and uh, children in custody hearings. And your mom is a lawyer. Yeah, she is. Thanks for reminding me. I forgot about that. <laughs> so tell, also, tell us, what's it like to grow up in a family of a lot of lawyers? Um, well, it's hard to get uh, a word in edgewise, I would say. Um, and uh, it, it provides both stimulating moments and moments of frustration and also moments of sheer confusion uh, when you grow up around terms like torts and negligence and uh, the rule against perpetuities um, and, and things like that. Well, I don't um, think but the, it, rule, well, the rule against perpetuities was not probably a big discussion at the dinner table. <laughs> no, thankfully it wasn't. I think it was mentioned once as to what is the most boring uh, aspect of the law and the hardest concept to understand. And, and the answer was the rule against perpetuities. So growing up with all these lawyers and these law discussions, what was it that got you to still want to do this? Um, well, uh, I got a little bit of, uh, well, first of all, I mean, growing up, there, there were moments of, of pure uh, wonder um, in terms of the types of work my grandfather, my father did. Um, I had people on furloughs who were um, Black Panthers staying at the house who while they were at our house, decided to make a run for it. And so one night I, I went to bed and, and one of my dad's Black Panther clients, who I loved, uh, named Larry, Larry went, he also went to bed. I woke up the next morning, uh, Larry was gone. And there was a group of police looking for him. Uh, and, I, and I heard these incredible stories about lawyers and uh, what they could do to help society. and and especially the type of work that my grandfather and my father did was always uh, 
what what anybody would refer to as the David of the David versus Goliath side. Um, if there was a if there was a little man versus a big man or a little man versus a big company, we were always on the side of the, of the little man. And to me, that just seemed like a truly uh, honorable and great fight to engage in. And so there was there it wasn't all just um, over my head stuff. Uh, in fact, I didn't even know that there were other types of lawyers other than lawyers that went to court and fought tooth and nail for a client who had been wrongfully uh, either accused or who had been wronged in some way that was trying to stake their claim to justice in the court of law. So I had a very high and, and mighty view of it. I think it ended ultimately what ended up what ended up me being a, going to law school was really a kick in the pants for my father, uh, who in his very inimitable way, I said, do you think I should go to law school after three years of kind of languishing in New York City? And, and he said, um, sure, I mean, you might as well try it. And if you don't like it, you can always drop out. <laughs> and, and that was the kind of, that's exactly the kind of advice that uh, proved to be very helpful for me because I had problems making decisions. And it was the same advice that he gave me when I asked if, if he thought I should get married to my then girlfriend and now wife. Darcy, and he said, well, you, you, sure, you might as well try it. You can always get divorced. Um, so um, so those were the, that's all I really needed, an excuse. And I, I didn't think I would really like law school, but the first year of law school I found to be an incredibly eye-opening experience, and, and so much so that I was able to get through the next two, second and third year somewhat barely because they get increasingly boring uh, after the first year. So that's those long story short. So when you when you got out of law school, did you join right away with uh, the Costco firm? I did. I did. I was sufficiently hazed here. Uh, they gave me they they went around, I think, the office and they they asked all the partners to fork over their worst cases and their and their hardest cases and their uh, and uh, they dropped them on my desk uh, and uh, basically said, good luck. Um, and, uh, and no, I'm overstating it a little bit, but you know, when you start off, you your, your, your life is always about like climbing the ladder and then, uh, getting to the top and then starting the next ladder. And so I, um, I started from the bottom again and I, I tried to dig my way out. Uh, and it took me quite some time before I felt proficient and, uh, I wasn't always sure it was going to work out. And, and my, luckily my dad and, and at that time, when my mom left as soon as I started the firm. She said, "I'm out of here. I can't. I can't bear witness to this." Uh, my dad stuck with me long enough so that uh, I was able to figure it out along with mentorship here, and start to climb that ladder again. Well, you know, my father, being a lawyer and a trial lawyer, had his own firm, and he, he told me that I should go out and do my own thing and not be tied to him. And what was it like, you know, working the firm? Your dad obviously is the senior guy in the firm, and your mom obviously worked there, and your grandfather founded the firm. What was it like to be in a firm like that? Did people treat you differently? How did judges react to you? What was that like? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, um, uh, people did treat me differently. Uh, at that time, when I first started, there were a lot of people who knew my, who had known my grandfather really well, judges who had grown up with him uh, and uh, presided over his cases. And, um, and of course, my father was very vibrantly engaged in the practice. So um, I would walk in the courtroom. In fact, the first time I was in the courtroom, 
I didn't even introduce myself. A judge who I had never met looked at me and said, yes, Mr. Koskoff, what can I do for you? And he sort of had this sarcastic, like, I'm going to, I'm going to take, <laughs> I'm going to give you a, a, a pretty rude awakening to a court of law, young man. So, you know, I think, I think coming from the firm and it being a family firm, you get uh, some good natured ribbing, you get, you get some people who have been waiting to take out their frustrations of being on the wrong side of a case with my grandfather and father on a kid who uh, can't find his way, you know, out of a, out of a paper bag. And they've just been waiting to take it out on the Costco firm and now they have their chance. And you have this weird situation, Brian, around the office where it was a mixture of, well, you know, the office people who, who knew my family well, they were, they were welcoming me, but there was, there was this sort of tension, I think, between like, is he going to, is he going to pan out, you know? Um, and oh, definitely. The uh, pressure, I, was, pressure was on you. Yeah, the pressure was on me. I mean, you know, it's through no fault of, of my family or anybody here. It's just natural. And, you know, these were, it was really for my dad, uh, it was really hard. I'm sure to fill my, to try to fill my grandfather's shoes. Uh, and it was for me to try to fill my dad's shoes. Although, you know, I think I basically thought of it as you don't, you have to think of it as filling your own shoes uh, to, to get through. Um, and, uh, you know, and you probably had this too, the folks who knew your, your, the, the other, the generations of Panishes, there's certain expectations there that they don't have for other people. And, it, and I think that uh, there, people are more quickly to say, well, he's not like his dad or he doesn't have the skill or whether that's true or not, it weighs on you a little bit. I think definitely they hold you to a higher standard. Obviously your father and grandfather were very successful. My father was a successful trial lawyer and they expect more from you. And, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing though. I think holding you to a higher standard kind of makes you perform even better. I, I totally agree. I mean, um, I think I've, I, I've told people that, you know, when I was about five or six years in, I really hadn't done, I didn't really have much to uh, look back and say, yep, that was me. I would try, you know, I didn't have much of a track record. It really didn't start developing till later. And I, I faced kind of this like existential question about whether I should just, you know, bail and save the family, the good family name. But that, that's sort of like, uh, you know, razor's edge moment for me, I think was a turning point because I think it, it motivated me to, to, that I, I gotta, I gotta start coming through for the, because this is, this is a family uh, legacy that I'm very proud of and I want to continue. And that necessity became, I think, you know, kind of a mother of invention for, for me to find my way. Um, and the high expectations are good. And also just the, the mentorship is, is great. Um, and so it is on balance. I, I mean, who could possibly complain about the types of, you know, the situations that you and I uh, were blessed to have with our, with our relatives. We're very blessed and fortunate, but when you get to court, it doesn't really matter. It's all on you and your case. And no matter how good your father or grandfather was, you got to do it yourself. And, and I think that's what everybody realizes once you get in there. And my father would always tell me, when you go to court, they don't ask what law school you went to because I went to a, what I would call a regional law school like you did, and which, which doesn't mean much, but 
you know, we didn't go to Harvard and we didn't go to uh, Berkeley or some of these top law schools. But when you get to court, they don't care. It's all up to what you can you do it or not. And you've shown that, you know, it's you're on your own. So when was it that you first started feeling comfortable? How many cases had you tried where you felt like, hey, you know, I could do this. I could win these cases. Yeah, I think I was probably... I think of it as years. So I think the first like five or six years, I felt like I really was uh, just treading water. Um, there came a time when I tried a particular case, which one of my partners at that point, I was associate, but he handed me this third part of this case and didn't expect much out of it. Uh, and I, and it was a malpractice case. And I tried to convince the client to withdraw the case. Because I was, I mean, we'd already settled two parts of it, Brian, and, and the third part was the hardest, most attenuated part by one way of looking at it. And uh, she kind of weighed her options and asked me a question about the case and uh, about an EKG that was done on her husband, and he had died in a, of a cardiac arrest. And, and she asked me whether the EKG was normal. And it was really important that she asked that question that way, because the EKG was what they call nonspecific. So... It wasn't abnormal, but at the same token, you couldn't say it was normal. So when I said, I can't say it was normal, she said, well, let's try the case. And I'm thinking, oh, crap, here I go with another defense verdict on lying and wait. And everything started to go right in that trial. I started to sort of see the way things fit together in court for the first time. You know, how a complaint worked and, and the importance of that. And so the logic of it just kind of, it, was, it wasn't quite as, as dramatic as a light bulb, but it was kind of like a, a light bulb that was that went off for a couple of weeks. And um, and I felt I was at the end of the case, I was thinking, I think we may have won this case. And uh, and that's when I got a, a this this case I tried to withdraw. We got a, a, a wonderful, huge verdict at the time. Still would be a big verdict of ten million dollars for this uh this truck driver, a 50 year old guy who didn't have much of an earning capacity. And, um, and, and as I don't know if this is your experience, but it really doesn't take the, the best, the best cure for an insecure lawyer is a big verdict. It just makes you feel like you can do it. And um, that, that kind of confidence, uh, I think that that was sort of the the turning point for me, and and I ended up losing that case on appeal. They reversed it, um, but on retrial, uh, and I told them that I said, look, the case, the facts aren't going to change. But on retrial, I got a twenty two point five million dollar verdict. So I remember calling my dad, and I said uh, after that verdict, I said, Dad, I apologize because I must have really screwed up the first case because it was only ten. Wow, so I was starting to feel my feel my uh, feet under me. I think it's kind of that validation. You know, you do great. And and my experience were trying cases that were hard that other lawyers didn't want to try and losing, but thinking you did great, but you still lost. And finally you break through and you win a case and it gives you that shot in the arm, that huge boost of confidence. And you, you think you can do it. So it just takes time. Eventually, if <laughs> You learn you're going to get a case, and you're going to get a decent jury, and you're going to win, and then you think you can win every case, and then you got another problem. Well, apparently, you, you're proving that you can. But uh, uh, I in my case, that, Josh. No, well, okay. Well, let's get to, let's get to some <laughs> important stuff here. This, okay. okay. 
Now, one thing, having, you know, been in case with your father and known him for a long time, he was the kind of guy, and he did this to me on a case, and I've learned never to ask him whether he should take a case because the harder the case is, the more he wants to take it. Was that a fair statement? I think it. I, I think it's a very fair statement. He, he loved. He loved a, a good challenge. And he was never worried about how much money it was going to cost or losing the case. All he wanted to do was show that this client deserved compensation and justice, and he was going to get it no matter what it took or no matter how hard the case was. So that brings and, us. Go ahead, Josh. No, I was just going to say, you know, when my dad passed away recently, but one of the things he said to me towards the end of his life when explaining his gestalt about being a lawyer was that he saw it more as a service industry than a profession. And that he and my grandfather, my grandfather had the, the belief that if you did good work, you know, maybe you'd make money, you know, the money would come. And if it didn't, okay, you still were doing good work. So they never really made decisions based on whether they could make any money out of a case. They, they made decisions based on whether they thought the cause was right. So, um, that, takes so that, us, was, that takes us yeah. to how many years ago that the shooting at the Sandy Hook well, uh, school occur? Uh, we're coming up, uh, this, this December 14th will be the seventh uh, anniversary. So obviously everybody's seen the horrible tragedy that occurred. And how is it that you got involved in the case and that you wanted to, and you and your father decided to take on the gun industry? Um, well, uh, I got involved really in a way to help. Well, I got involved because a, a dry, I was getting a ride to the airport from a guy who was a friend of the, of Carlos Soto, who was the first grade classroom father, teacher's father, Vicky Soto. Uh, and so I, this was about within a week of the event. And I said, boy, I would do anything to help these people. Just tell them to call me. I'm sure his family has been turned upside down. Anything I can do or our firm can do, we will help. At that point, I was thinking it would just be like helping with the paperwork of probate or helping to manage uh, their the onslaught of media, whatever it was. Um, and then um, and then. Uh, I started to build a client base because of either people heard that I was looking, I was helping people out or, or I get referrals from, from other folks in the Connecticut area. It was logical that they would call us because of the kind of cases we do. Um, and I, and I just, uh, over time, I helped them with their, their political efforts. I helped them write speeches. I, uh, did all these kinds of things. There was a United Way dispute. So I helped them with that. And then, uh, but it was understood that I'd also be looking into their legal rights, if any, against different, you know, potential defendants for, for trying to do something to help prevent uh, something like what had happened from occurring again, you know, or just doing our part. So, um, so that's how I got involved. And, and you know, we, we looked at a number of different avenues, but for my mind, the issue was always the gun and the availability of these guns, uh, these military weapons that the, on the floor of Vicky's classroom, first grade classroom was an AR-15 and that weapon without a shadow of a doubt was built for the United States military. So you get the case. I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of naysayers, people saying, oh, the gun industry, you're never going to be able to win, right? 
Yeah, most of them worked with me. <laughs> but, but your <laughs> father wasn't one of them. No, he wasn't. You know, one thing you could always count on, going back to your point, Brian, you could always count on my dad to, he, he relished the challenge and, you know, was fully supportive. Uh, he didn't, he didn't sweat too many of the details, I would say. No. Um, and, you know, you know, he came up with some very, uh, very creative thought ideas as to how we might be able to hold them accountable. Unfortunately, they were all preempted by federal law. And, and it, it, we had this kind of somewhat, uh, somewhat amusing back and forth where I, I had to keep telling him that his great theories were really, they just, that I understood that they were negligent theories, but that they really didn't work uh, for these gun cases. So then you file the case, huge media onslaught, a lot of naysayers. Describe for the listeners the procedural history of back and forth and what happened. Yeah, I mean, this could be this would be a great case uh, to use to teach uh, federal civil procedure, uh, and it's just civil procedure in general, I guess, is is mostly federal, but uh, to a law school class because I learned and I learned a lot. So we filed our case um, in part. We, well, we filed our our main defendant is the Remington Arms Company. They're a North Carolina company, but the the weapon was sold uh, at a local store here in Connecticut. So we had, uh, we were able to file in state court um, under claim of negligent entrustment, which is one of the exceptions to the federal uh, immunity. And uh, we also, we also filed under a claim of violation of state statute, but that, so we had, uh, we, we were able to defeat diversity and keep ourselves in, in state court. The federal court has been no friend of the uh, gun, of gun lawsuits, as you can imagine. And uh, federal law is, is kind of is kind of rough. So we um, uh, the other side move, removes it. They argue that we fraudulently joined the seller of the weapon here. Uh, uh, that that put the case on ice for what for seemingly a long time, probably almost a year uh, of between the briefing, and then it got sent back here. Uh, there were fights then to move it out of this local court to a complex court. That took time. There were motions to dismiss filed. <clears throat> really, we call motions to strike the case. Uh, that took about a year and a half to resolve. Uh, there were periods of time, there went long periods of time on, on each of these uh, briefs. And then ultimately, the judge took about six months to decide that and grant their motion to strike. Now we're before the Connecticut, now we have to go petition for cert to the Connecticut Supreme Court which was really never in doubt. Obviously they were gonna take the case directly rather than, than through the appellate court. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they, that set out another about a year and about a, a year between that and having our oral argument, which occurred in 2017 and in November of 2017. And then um, a year and a half went by, Brian, before almost before the ruling which came out in March on March 14th of this year, which um, reversed on, uh, on the issue of whether they violated the state statute. Um, and so the long story short is when we filed two years and we've been at this litigation for about four and a half years and really have yet to um, get really engaged in any discovery. So as it stands right now, the case is viable and, and discovery is going to commence. 
Not quite, because um, there is that uh, there is one little uh, hiccup left, which is that the defendants have uh, have petitioned for cert to the United States Supreme Court, and um, they have not filed their petition yet. But the but the state Supreme Court granted the defendants' motion to stay the proceedings until this until SCOTUS uh, weighs in. So they'll file a so petition that, for cert, you'll file an answer, and then if the Supreme right. Court denies cert, the stay would be lifted, case would move forward in discovery. If the Supreme Court grants cert, could be a couple more years battling it out in the United States Supreme Court. You got it. And, wow. um, and uh, you know, we knew, obviously we knew that, and our clients, our families knew that this was going to be a long and hard-fought battle, and um, they really have unending patience to see that justice is done for them and their families, and uh, and the way they see it for the for the nation at large. Well, Josh, we're out of time. Thank you so much for all you do. We're looking for great success in the Sandy Hook case. We didn't even get into the Las Vegas shooting case you're handling. We'll get that next time. But thank you so much for being here. Our listeners really will enjoy this. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Brian. I appreciated it. Thank you.